Stand with me. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and I'm going to go through the end of chapter 2. So here now, this is God's word. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. And for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. Even this story that we see the wrath, the fury, the rage of King Herod. And we pray that as we look at this passage that you would speak to us. That you would remind us of your power, your might, your love, and your sovereignty. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The psalm we just read, Psalm 2, begins like this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Beloved, the scriptures characterize the history of God's creation as a cosmic war, one full of trickery and treachery. The lines, the battle lines were drawn in the Garden of Eden when the ancient serpent, in an act of treachery against the Almighty God, tricked Adam and Eve to sin against God. And in so doing, all people became subject to the power of the devil and enchained and enslaved to their sin. But in the midst of that tragedy, God promised ultimate victory. God promised that he would send one who would deliver his people from the power of, the, of evil, one who would rescue the captives from the power of Satan. And as the story of the Old Testament continued, that story continued where God's people were at war with glimpses of hope, 
but no clear victory. What God's people needed was a champion, one who would achieve and accomplish their victory. And so God, in his sovereign love, sent his son to rescue his people from the power of the evil one, to go into the strong man's house and bind him and set the captives free. But if there was ever a time when Satan would achieve an easy victory over the Son of God, it was at this point in history recorded for us in Matthew chapter 2. The kingdoms of the world were at the height of their power, and the Son of God was at his most vulnerable. He was an infant, cared for by his teenaged mother. But rather than a decisive victory for the devil, what this story tells is more of a D-Day invasion of our God and the kingdom of heaven. But it was one that wasn't without a terrible fight. But what we need to see is that the kingdoms of this world will rage, but the king of kings reigns. This is a story that shows the Almighty God laughing at the powers of wickedness as he demonstrates his power to protect his king and his kingdom. Now, uh, if there was ever a king that the evil one could raise up for such a time as this, that king was Herod the Great. The Roman Empire had a pattern where they would uh, set up a client king. That's a king um, that was over a conquered kingdom, somebody from that kingdom who would rule on behalf of Rome in that place, be subject to Rome, but have almost unchecked power in the land that was there. And so in 37 BC, about 30 years before this event, Mark Antony and the Roman Senate appointed Herod king of the Jews. He would be the one who would rule in Israel over the Jews. So the Jews, the Israelites, had their king. They were given a king, but it wasn't a king of their choosing. In fact, he wasn't even an Israelite. Herod was an Idumean. So the Idumeans traced their heritage from the Edomites. The Edomites traced their heritage heritage to Esau, Jacob's brother. And if you read the Old Testament, you would know that the Edomites were enemies to God's people, the Israelites. So while Herod lived in the land of Israel, in the geographical bounds, he wasn't even an Israelite. He was one of the enemies to God's people. And he was considered even, not even as much of a, a, a friend of the Jews as he was the Greeks. The first century historian Josephus said he is more a friend to the Greeks than to the Jews. He was intentional about appeasing the Roman Empire and bringing Greek culture to the land of Israel. So Josephus also said he gradually, Herod gradually corrupted the ancient way of life which had previously been inviolable. It was Herod 
who brought to Israel the Greek ways, the modern ways, a new way. He brought musical and athletic contests. He brought gladiators. He brought chariot races. He corrupted the piety of Israel. And Herod was ambitious with an insatiable desire for power and influence. He was called Herod the Great, and he desired to make his name great. He embarked on massive building projects to put his stamp on the world. His greatest building project was renovations to the temple to Yahweh in Jerusalem. A temple which people said, he who has not seen Herod's temple has not seen beauty. Another said it was of most exceeding beauty and magnificence so as to be a universal object of admiration. In fact, to this day, 2,000 years later, observant Jews go to the Western Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, which is the last remaining part of Herod's temple. But his building projects also reflected his pride and his arrogance. In addition to the temple in Jerusalem, he also built himself a magnificent palace. He built a fortress named after his master, Mark Antony, called the Antonia Fortress, which housed Roman soldiers. But his greatest building accomplishment, other than the temple, was what became known as the Port of Caesarea. Now, Israel has no natural port, seaport, for trade, but trade is an essential part of expanding a nation. But Herod had other intentions as well. In defiance to the natural order of God's creation, Herod said, I will build a port. I will build a port that will allow me to expand trade, but also to make clear to the nations that I am serious about being a world player. I am serious about putting my name on the map. He had his builders drop massive stones, most of them 50 feet in length, 120 feet in the, in the, uh, in the water, and then build a massive pier on top of these stones. And it was said by one author that this port was a magnificent entry into Herod's kingdom and a majestic stepping stone to the Western, Western world. This was his mark on the world. But ambition and power and arrogance, hubris, those are a dangerous mix. And Herod was both paranoid and ruthless. He uh, feared losing his throne, which he had gained by bloodshed. And so he engaged in bloodshed to make sure he kept his throne. He was so afraid that he established a spy network. He hired foreigners to come in and spy among his people. He was so paranoid that he, even he himself would dress up like the people and go and spy out among them. He knew that he was un unpopular, so he feared what would happen. He built other fortresses throughout the land of Israel that served both as palaces but also protective havens where he could go. You might have heard of Masada or Herodian. These were fortresses that he could flee to should his people turn on him. But he was so paranoid and so ruthless that he was even willing to take the life of his family members. 
He executed his two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, because they were more popular than he was. And and after hearing that, Augustus Caesar said reportedly, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod's second wife he killed. She was his favorite, Mariamne, because he feared, he believed that she had committed adultery on him. He executed her. She was the second of ten wives. He executed his mother-in-law, and five days before Herod's own death, he, he executed a third son. And he was so ruthless and so paranoid that he devised a plan that at his death ensured that people would mourn his passing. He ordered that uh, prominent people from every town would be rounded up into captivity. And his orders were that at his death, all those people would be killed. So that at his death, every person in Israel would mourn, if not for his death, than for the death of these prominent individuals. Thankfully, after he died, those orders were not carried out. This was Herod the Great. And about two years before his death, 30 years into his reign, some foreigners from the east came into Jerusalem, the seat of his power, and began asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Now, Herod would have no rivals. So Herod immediately had decided that this child must die. He made fast work on his search and destroy mission. The first task was to determine where this child would be. So he summoned the chief priests and the scribes. Where would the Christ be born? They said, in Bethlehem. Okay, I know the place. Next, he needed to know the age of this child. To that, he summoned the Magi. He brought them in. He... Scripture says that he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He was determining how old this child was. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us how how old, but we'll talk about that in just a second. He determined the age. But then a, a, a thought comes in his mind. Let's take the guesswork out of this. I will have the Magi find this child for me. Now, Herod was used to using foreigners for his purposes, either as spies or as a brute squad to keep his people in check. But he didn't know these magi. He didn't know if he could trust them. So he tricks them. He says, go search diligently, find this child. When you found him, come back and tell me so that I may worship him. I may worship him. Now, he had no intention of worshiping them. He just didn't know if he could trust them. So they went on their way, and a couple days passed, and Bethlehem's only about six miles away, so he should have heard something by now. So perhaps he tapped into his spy network to figure out what happened to these people from the east, and he finds out that they left a different way. He was tricked, and as you might imagine, he was furious says. But he was undeterred. And what follows is a picture of his ruthless cruelty. For Herod began to discern how he might ensure that this child would be killed. And rather than send a single assassin to a single home in Bethlehem, he chose to carpet bomb 
the area to ensure success. He knew that the child would be born in Bethlehem, and he knew roughly the age of the child. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us the age, but we can figure it out. We believe that the Magi came about a thousand miles, probably traveled by camel. Camels travel roughly 20 miles a day, so doing the math, it's about a two-month journey. But that's not what Herod does. He doesn't say two-month-olds in Bethlehem. He says he, exec- he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. He would kill this child. He will ensure it by his power. What a horrible atrocity. And yet, despite Herod's treachery, his plans were foiled. God appeared in a dream to Joseph to escape, to flee to Egypt. And the Lord Jesus Christ was saved from destruction. He was prevented from death. And they remained in Egypt until Herod died, probably about another two years, at what point God appeared again and told Joseph to return to the land of Israel. But not this time to Bethlehem. For there was yet another dream, because Archelaus, the ruthless son of Herod, was now in power. And, and Joseph was told, go not to Bethlehem. So they went to Galilee, to an obscure town called Nazareth, where they would be, obscure, they would be shielded from Herod's schemes, his agenda, his rule. And so, beloved, when we, when we look at this passage, what we need to see is that the nations, the kings of this world rage against the Lord and against his anointed, but our God reigns. Our God reigns. We need to see the rage, see Herod's response. Herod's opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ, his fury was spiritual in nature. It was a spiritual opposition. He had, Herod had a hold on worldly power, but he could feel it slipping through his fingers. It was a temporary hold. And God God will have no opposition to, uh, to himself. And as we read in, in Psalm 2, it says that as the kings of the world set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, God sits on his throne and he laughs. He laughs at the opposition. And I think we can see some of that laughing here even in this passage. We can, we can read history books. We see that Herod was called Herod the Great. We see that the Roman Empire declared that Herod was the king of the Jews. But if we read through the pages of Scripture, we will never see either of those titles given to Herod. But what do we see? We see foreigners from the east arriving to Jerusalem and asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And you might remember 
in the book of Luke, in that story where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, telling her that she was going to be with child, the first thing that the angel Gabriel says to Mary is, he will be great. This child, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the king of Jews, and he will be great, not the wicked king Herod. And beloved, the kings of the earth that set themselves, the rulers of the world that set themselves against the Lord and against their, his anointed, hate opposition. But they know, we know in our core, that God's reign is supreme. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of the ancient serpent and says, Woe! to the earth and to the sea for the devil has come down in great wrath because he knows that his time is short he knows his time is short herod knew that his time was short and beloved this is why we face opposition as believers in the lord jesus christ if we are in christ jesus we have become part of his body and he is the king and we bear the aroma of christ and the world hates it, hates that stench because it smells like the, the king that will bring defeat and destruction to the kings of this world. And beloved, that's, that's why we feel the conflict in our own hearts, actually. Because all of us, Paul says, were subject to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. We were all put in captivity to the evil one and uh, in chains to our own sin. And beloved, sin is rebellion. Sin is lawlessness. And in sin, in our sin, even having come to Christ, what we are seeking to do is defy the king of kings and enthrone ourselves as king of the universe, as judge, as ruler of all things. Beloved, it is our sin. You might look at Herod and say, man, that guy was wicked, and he was. But beloved, our sin is wicked. Our sin is demonic in its nature, that we would negate the law and the rule of the sovereign almighty God of the universe and instead seek to rebel or disregard his holy rule. And so, beloved, when we look at Herod, you can see an embodiment of the wickedness of your sin, of my sin. It's right there pages of scripture beloved the kings of the world rage but our God reigns our God reigns and the good news beloved is that God sent his son this baby to rescue captives to redeem sinners for himself from the power of the enemy beloved if you're in Christ if you have you're clinging to him for salvation then Jesus Christ has come to rescue you as a conquering king. And in a very real sense, he has subdued you for himself. 
He has quieted the raging, the wrath, the fury in your heart that is against him. He's quieted you by his love. And he's given you a heart of humility to submit to him in love. And beloved, he sets us free. He sets us free to be part of his kingdom, to walk in his ways. And beloved, if you're in Christ, that's, that's the gift that you've been given. You have been set free. He's lavishing his blessings and his benefits of being in his kingdom, his powerful protection and provision and love and care. And he will have been forgiven <laughs> and you've been cleansed so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the wickedness of Herod. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And what did he do for his son, Jesus Christ? He protected him. That's another way that he reigns supreme. God protects his king and his kingdom. He, Herod sought to trick the Magi, but God tricked Herod. He used Herod used schemes, and God used dreams. Herod sent the murderers to kill the Lord Jesus, but even before the thought had even been in Herod's mind, God appeared in a dream in the night to Joseph to deliver his son. And when they were returning, the ruthless son Archelaus was there. God yet again appeared in a dream to Joseph. He protected his Son, and beloved, it's, it is natural. We, we fear lots of, th there's lots of things in this world that can hurt us. It's natural to fear wickedness. Wickedness is wicked. It's evil. It's destructive. It's murderous. We live in a world, in this world, that is full of wickedness, and we are subject to this world's rules. And we can easily feel outmatched and overpowered and helpless. And we sense our weakness. We sense our inability to stand up to these things. But beloved, we look at this passage. As vulnerable as you are to the wickedness of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ was more vulnerable. He was an infant. And yet God protected him part of his powerful purposes. And God promises to protect you as he protected his son. So in what ways do you need to trust God's powerful protection, his faithfulness to you? In what ways do you need to be strengthened in your faith that God has a particular affection for you, that he is protecting you in the midst of the wickedness of this world, that you would not rage against him or seek to take things in your own hands. Fear is normal because there are fearful things in this world. But scripture teaches us, like we saw in our law passage, to say, when I am afraid, I will trust, I will trust in you, in God, in whose word I praise we need to meditate on his power and his faithfulness. And I encourage you to ask God to reveal to you how he protects you. Reveal to you his power, his might, 
his love, his faithfulness, God is always, always faithful. Always faithful. My beloved also realized that uh, this promise of salvation, this promise of protection came at the cost of the cross. God protects you because he left his son unprotected. Yeah, it's true that God protected the Lord Jesus from the powers of Herod, but the Lord Jesus Christ endured a time where he was unprotected from not the wrath of Herod, but the wrath of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't die as a helpless victim. He laid down his life as a willing sacrifice for you, for me, to, to save us for himself. So God protects his people but he also uses wickedness to bring about the fruition of his eternal plan. I don't know if you saw it, but three times in this passage, Matthew makes clear that what took place here was a fulfillment of the prophetic word of the Old Testament. It's not to say that God desired Herod's wickedness. God hates evil and all wickedness, but God uses human wickedness to bring about his purposes. Uh, Matthew clearly makes connections in such a way to highlight that the Lord Jesus Christ is like Moses. I don't know if you saw this. Um, consider the parallels. Herod, like Pharaoh, was a wicked ruler over the Israelites who is seeking to kill Israelite boys because he is threatened. Jesus, like Moses, was miraculously protected from this uh, attempt from the, the leader. Um, Jesus, like Moses, escapes from the wrath of the leader until he gets the all clear from God. And Matthew even uses the same language from Exodus where he says, those who are seeking your life are now dead. And the point is that Jesus, like Moses, would be the deliverer of his people. But Matthew also clearly connects the Lord Jesus to the nation of Israel, God's people. Because Jesus, like Israel, is sent to Egypt as a result of dreams. And in both cases, the dreamers are named Joseph. Both Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ are considered, called, God's son. And in both cases, they're brought out of Egypt. As Matthew quotes from the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew's, part of Matthew's agenda throughout his entire gospel is to show that the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect Israelite, the one who would represent his people perfectly in his righteousness, but also his sacrifice. And beloved, all this, these hints of the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ are there in the context of the fury of Herod, in the, in the context of human wickedness. And beloved, God still works out his purposes in the context of human wickedness. We face trials in conflict with the world, 
because of this cosmic battle that we face? And the Apostle Peter said that by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. In this you rejoice, though now by, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, and here's the purpose, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is working out the testing of your faith. He's proving it as genuine. It's faith that unites you by God's power to Christ. He's testing it. He's proving it out. James, the apostle James said, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He is perfecting you even as he promises to guard you through faith for that salvation that is to be revealed. And so, beloved, God is working these things out in the context of the conflict. And so we have to ask, how has God used suffering and trials in your life to test your faith? to help you to grow in godliness? How has he done it in the past? And have you praised him for those trials? Praised him for that work of salvation? Giving him thanks for how he has worked in that wickedness to bring about his glorious purposes? And how is he doing it now? What The trials, the struggles, the conflicts that you're faced with right now, how is... How might he be working in you even now? You might want to ask the Lord to reveal to you how he is working these things, where you need to grow, and pray that he would be effective in this test, that it would, your faith would be proved genuine, that it might result in praise and glory and honor. God is always faithful. God is always faithful. Pray that he would do just that. We're in the midst of this massive conflict, this cosmic conflict between this clash of kingdoms between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, Psalm 2 says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them those who oppose him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Beloved, Herod raged in his fury to put an end to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord laughed. The Lord prevailed. The Lord protected his son and now the Lord Jesus Christ has been enthroned. He has set him in the heavenly realms far above all authority and power and given him all authority in heaven and on earth so that he is enthroned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Psalm 2 ends, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss 
the Son, lest he be angry and you perish on the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then he ends by saying, Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Beloved and brothers and sisters, let us take refuge in the strong care of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For he is our king and he reigns supreme. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you assure us of your power and your might. Thank you that you protected our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he might save us and that we might be truly saved. Help us to walk with the assurity of your love and your power. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.